The Seahawks surprised many by going 9-8 and eight and making the playoffs this season, but there were some clear areas for improvement heading into the offseason, and one stands out even more after watching the Chiefs edge out the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Dallas Cooper and I are going to be breaking it all down in our latest installment of the Flocked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Joining me for our Thursday episode, my co-host Dallas Cooper. A special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We're only a few days removed from one of the best Super Bowls that I have seen in recent memory, the Chiefs edging the Eagles. And there's one big lesson, a friendly reminder for the Seahawks as they try to get to the big game next season. We're going to be discussing that one clear area of improvement. We're going to be looking at the interior offensive line and dishing out an end of season report card and continuing our free agent primers with the elder statesman in the pass rushing group, Bruce Irvin. Will he be back for a 12th season and ride out in the sunset in Seattle? Jam-packed episode coming your way, courtesy of FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of the NFL. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on today to get started. Now for your lead story here on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. The Seahawks exceeded all expectations this season, going 9-8, and eight making the playoffs as a wild card team after jettisoning Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner. Few outside of the building thought that the Seahawks were going to accomplish such a feat. And yet Sunday's Super Bowl, which was an instant classic between the Chiefs and the Eagles, really Dallas, it provided a grim reminder of where the Seahawks are at and where they need to be. And in particular, there was one position group that stood out watching that game. I don't know what perspective you have after revisiting uh, that game and watching it a second time, but I can tell you I was in envy watching the offensive lines for both of these teams, which clearly were the two best offensive lines in the NFL. Seeing the way that the Eagles were driving the Chiefs' defensive line off the ball, particularly in short yardage running situations, building that first half lead. And then Kansas City not giving up a single sack to Philadelphia's number one sack-producing defense. That was even more remarkable. And that really tells you where the Seahawks are at and where they need to be. Because even though they're in the early stages of rebuilding this line and you've got two really good young tackles, obviously that is a line that is not near the level of the Chiefs and Eagles. And they're going to have to find a way to – close that gap to be able to get back to the big game. The amount of years that each of those teams have invested into the offensive line is truly remarkable. The Eagles themselves have stuck through the draft and built continuity throughout that line. Jordan Mailata, former rugby star, Landon Dickerson, Jason Kelsey, one of the best centers in NFL history, Isaac Sayomalu, and then Lane Johnson, who's a walking Hall of Famer. All of those players have been with the Eagles for a while now. They've built chemistry, and that's why they're able to produce such a diverse run game. Name any kind of running scheme that they have or any running scheme available. They've ran it this year, 
And with Jalen Hurts at the helm, this offensive line has done an amazing job helping him improve. And as far as the Chiefs, they've done a little bit different, as we were talking about prior to the show. They've gone through more of big moves like trade, free agency, players such as Orlando Brown Jr. Then you guys have like Joe Thune. Those guys are elite talents. And those are the talents that are difference makers on the offensive line and can truly make remarkable plays for you and truly kind of dominate defensive lines. As we saw in the Super Bowl, the best defensive line in the NFL was shut out. That is truly remarkable for the Chiefs offensive line. Yeah, the Chiefs offensive line, again, this is what stood out to me watching that game. Everybody's going to talk about Patrick Mahomes, and they should. He made some spectacular throws, and he made a gutsy long run on an injured ankle in the second half. Everybody's going to talk about some of the big plays that the receivers and the running backs made or Travis Kelsey made at the tight end position. And those players deserve their accolades. But to me, the stars of this game were the offensive linemen on both sides of the ball, in particular Kansas City, is keeping that vaunted pass rush away from Patrick Mahomes and allowing him to orchestrate four straight scoring drives in the second half, overcome the halftime deficit, and win by three. The offensive line deserves the MVP as far as I'm concerned. And that's never going to happen because the skill players always get the highlights. They always get the awards. But the Chiefs offensive line was phenomenal throughout this game, protecting Patrick Mahomes. They ran the football well, which is something they didn't do most of the playoffs up to this point. And so you got to see this line that has been constructed a lot differently than what the Eagles offensive line is constructed. They did trade for Orlando Brown Jr. from the Ravens. They signed Thune in free agency. But they did draft Creed Humphrey. Seahawks fans, unfortunately, know about that. And he's become an all-pro center. They got Trey Smith in the sixth round in the same draft. He's become a very good right guard for them. And Andrew Wiley, right tackle, there's nothing flashy about him, but he is a respectable right tackle. And they've been able to rotate some other players into that position, and they've still been able to succeed. And so both these offensive lines that we saw on Sunday, looking at this chart, I put this together This just gives you an idea where the Eagles and Chiefs are at with their offensive line. And I'm not saying Pro Football Focus and ESPN are the messiah of offensive line evaluation. There would be some players in here I have some questions about their grades or what their pass block win rate, run block win rate is. But you can see, those watching on YouTube here, the Eagles and the Chiefs have a ton of green, which means that they have players in the top 10 in overall grade or pass block grade or win rate. For example, Lane Johnson, he's first in pass block win rate among tackles at 95%. Landon Dickerson is second at the guard group, 97%. There's a lot of green. There's even a lot of yellow, which means the players ranked between 11 and 20, which is still respectable in the NFL The Seahawks, on the other hand, Dallas, they only have one player that got a green cell on that chart. That was Damian Lewis being in the top five for run block win rate among guards. Otherwise, none of Seattle's starting offensive linemen had any green, and there were only a handful of yellows, and they all belonged to Damian Lewis, who was clearly, by all those metrics, the best offensive lineman for the Seahawks this year from start to finish. The rest of the line is littered with dark orange, meaning that they ranked 21st or worse among their position group. And 
certainly there's some more respectable ones. If you're in the mid twenties or early low thirties, that's still not bad. You're above the middle of the pack, but clearly there's area of improvement and the Eagles and chiefs, their entire offensive line is littered with players. that are top 10 or top 20 in their position group in different metrics. You can see it on film. We can see it on Sunday. And that is clearly where the Seahawks have to close this gap to be able to compete for Super Bowls. Because even though the offense was top 10 in points scored this year, they had long stretches. They couldn't run the football. And late in the year, Geno Smith was under a lot more duress. So they have to continue building this offensive line. They've got some of the framework with the young tackles, but there's still a long way to go with this group. And these numbers bear that out. The biggest thing you have to bet on if you're a Seahawks fan and in the Seahawks organization is both the young tackles improving going into year two. That's probably the biggest step to developing your offensive line into one of those elite units. The biggest thing, however, as we can see, the, the talent discrepancy between the Eagles and Chiefs and the Seahawks, it's mostly the interior of that offensive, of the offensive line. They have absolute game records on that side of the ball on in, along the interior, both the Chiefs and the Eagles in the run game, in the pass game, and the Seahawks do lack that. However, I think that the Seahawks do have a disadvantage in the fact that the, see, the Chiefs and the Eagles both have Andy Heck and Jeff Stoutland, the best offensive line coaches in the NFL. Andy Dickerson is no slouch in his own right, but those two have been proving themselves for over a decade to be one of the best position coaches in, t- in the entire NFL. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, and I love that you mentioned that Andy Dickers is not a slouch because I think that he did a really good job with this group last year. I just don't think that they have the talent overall that the Chiefs and the Eagles do. And there's still some areas that they have to continue to rebuild. And really, it's interesting because that's going to lead perfectly into our next segment, grading out the interior offensive line, both guard positions as well as center, because I think you and I would both agree that that is the area of this offensive line that looks like it needs the greatest improvement. We're going to look back at what went right, what went wrong, and what the future holds for that position. It's going to be a really interesting conversation building off of those numbers that we just saw and just how far the Seahawks have to go to catch the Eagles and the Chiefs and have an elite offensive line. We'll get to that report card coming up next here on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This episode is brought your way by Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious treat but don't want all the fat and calories, you got to try a Built Bar. We just got through the holidays, and I know my goal is to eat a little healthier this year. I've actually been able to turn the corner after a rough start, but if you're like me and you want to eat healthier and don't want to compromise taste, then I've got the thing for you. You've got to try Built Bars, 100% real chocolate, amazing flavors such as churro, peanut butter brownie, my personal favorite, and coconut almond. I'm not sure how Built does it, but these bars taste like a candy bar while maintaining amazing 100 calories, four, and a 17 grams of protein. It's perfect for a snack. It's perfect for a pregame workout. It's perfect when you're just looking for something for your sweet tooth and don't want to ruin your diet. 
you don't have to worry about any of those issues with a healthy built bar and now you don't have to wait around to get a box for years we've been talking about ordering your built bars at built.com now you can get them at your local walmart or sam's club head to your nearest walmart today walk over to the pharmacy section and you can grab yourself a box of built bars you can pick up a four bar box of cookies and cream double chocolate or coconut puffs and if you're near sam's club you can run in and grab a 13 bar box with other hit flavors such as brownie batter and churro you can thank me later you're listening to the Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined for today's episode by my co-host, Dallas Cooper. A special thanks to all the 12s out there. Whether it's your first time listening to Locked On Seahawks or you are a diehard regular listener, we appreciate all of you supporting the podcast. We just talked about that large gap between the Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles and the Seattle Seahawks when it comes to offensive line play. Now, the Seahawks are not starting from scratch. They do have their two young tackles they drafted last year that started the entire regular season, and that is a major reason to be optimistic about this offensive line moving forward. Those players should just keep getting better with experience, high upside talents, could be starters together for the next decade. But... As you mentioned, Dallas, and the interior offensive line, that seems to be where the Seahawks have the most work to do to close that gap. They're going to be hoping that Cross and Lucas can make that big sophomore leap and become top 10, top 15 tackles, but they need to address the interior offensive line. And you look at this group this season, I want to start with the positives, and this is why you and I agree that this group should be a C plus. Some of our listeners might think that's a little bit high, but The biggest positive for me here was Damian Lewis this season because in 2021, he regressed after being on the Pro Football Writers Association all-rookie team in 2020. He had injuries. He did not play at the same level after moving over to left guard. A lot of fans were upset that the Seahawks decided to do that with how well he played on the right side as a rookie. But this year, he avoided a big injury in the preseason. I thought for sure that he suffered a significant ankle injury. They got lucky, and he just had a sprained ankle. He was back by week two. He started every other game for the Seahawks the rest of the season at left guard. He was the only player that was in the top 20 in his position group for run blocking and pass blocking grade. He was in the top 10 for run block win rate on ESPN. So clearly by those metrics, and you watch the film, he was the most consistent offensive lineman for the Seahawks this year. He held up in pass pro. He got after the run game, both in zone and gap blocking schemes. And so that's really encouraging going into his final year of his rookie contract that he still looks like he might be a player that's part of that long-term foundation. The other two spots, on the other hand, there's a lot of concerns looking back on this year and what the future holds at center and right guard. As you said, Damian Lewis had an excellent rookie year. 2021, the regression happened. A lot of that was due to injury, as you said. But man, this year, in his second season at left guard, what a season. As you said, that ankle injury in the preseason scared all of us Seahawks fans. We all thought that Damian Lewis was going to be out for a while. But he miraculously wasn't, and it was a sprained ankle only, and by week two, as you said, started every game and brought domination in the run game. We already knew coming into the league he had game-wrecking power. He was a he was a powerful guard in college, and he came to the league as a powerful guard. But what he's tremendously improved on since being a Seahawk is his pass protection, his feet especially. 
his quick feet. He's able to match mirror defensive tackles a lot of times. And this is something that he had struggles in when, in early in his career. Yeah. And now it's proven to be a strength with his athleticism. That natural athleticism and strength, you can't teach that. That's something that it comes into play with his natural body type. And that's just him being an excellent player for the Seahawks. And as you said, top 10 in both pass block and run block win rate. What more can we say? An excellent season by Gabriel Lewis. Yeah, Damian Lewis had a fantastic year. And I think it kind of got lost a little bit because of the play of the tackles. And everybody wanted to talk about that. And it's understandable. Rookie tackles, rookies at both positions, it had only happened starting in week one, two other times since 1970. Like teams just don't do that. And the Seahawks rolled the dice and Cross and Lucas, even though they had their own struggles at times, expected as rookies. They played pretty darn well, and they got the experience playing in the postseason. But I think overshadowed and all that was the fact that Damian Lewis played better. And I will say this for Austin Blythe, and we'll get to some of the negatives as we roll here. But I think another positive for this interior offensive line this year, you can't understate the value, especially when you have two rookie tackles that are set to play in week one. You can't overstate the value of bringing in an outstanding communicator and a guy that knows the scheme inside and out, like Austin Blythe did, without playing a snap for the Seahawks. He had played for Shane Waldron and Andy Dickerson before, though. He knew the scheme. He was able to come in in day one, and he immediately took command of that offensive line. He brought great leadership. He only gave up three sacks in pass protection. He was a middle-of-the-pack center in pass pro, which is acceptable. You'll take that. And his leadership as far as picking up blitzes and calling out the line calls, making sure that those rookie tackles were on the same page, his guards next to him on the same page. I thought that was the biggest upgrade that they got in their offensive line by bringing him in, is that familiarity, his knowledge of the scheme, his ability to be able to relay information effectively to his teammates. And that was a big part of the success for Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas. You can't downplay that. Obviously, your center needs to be more than just a communicator. You need him to physically be a strong player at the point of attack and things of that nature. But in terms of the communication, especially this past season, given the circumstance with two rookies in the tackle positions, it was vital that they upgraded that. And Austin Blythe did bring them that luxury as a player that really checked off all of those boxes. He settled the young offensive line in. As a young offensive tackle, it had to have been a lot easier knowing that your center is familiar with the scheme, able to call out second-level blitzes a lot of time. When there's stunts happening, he can give you warnings on those. And Blythe, in general, I don't think – I think his run blocking was a lot overstated the struggles. I don't think he was really as bad as a lot of people think. He actually, I think, was not too bad when run blocking, when not facing a nose tackle directly in front of him. I think the struggles came when teams put a nose right in front of him and then forced him off the snap to have to run block right away with a guy right in front of him. And that's very difficult to do. But as you said, as a communicator, he settled in this offensive line and really brought these young tackles along the season. And you could see the development. Everyone got more comfortable as the season wore on. And I think Blaith had a lot to do with that. Yeah. And the coaching staff talked about it a lot that, his presence, just him being in the middle, him understanding the scheme, it really did make everybody else in that offensive line comfortable. They were confident. You could see that confidence in the way that the tackles were playing. Where I have to disagree with you, though, 
I don't think that the run blocking issues have been overstated when it comes to Austin Blythe. I saw a player at under 300 pounds that was physically dominated more times than not. And as you mentioned, the biggest issue is when teams were putting bigger, stronger nose tackles across from him. But guess what? The film is out there. Teams know that that is a way to attack the middle of this offensive line and they can take advantage of it. It's kind of like we've talked about this before with defensive players. You know, when you're game planning, I don't like using this term necessarily, but it's accurate. You're always looking for the rat. Who is the rat that I can pick on this week game planning wise? Defensive lines do that too. They look for where's the weak link on the offensive line. And how can I take advantage of that? And smart coordinators were putting big body guys in one tech or head up on Austin Blythe. And they were saying, okay, prove that you can actually block this guy or at least stay in front of him. And more times than not, it was not successful. So again, I'm not looking to pile it on a player. And I think in zone blocking, he has the athleticism with his wrestling background that I think he can improve in that area and be better next season. My concern is when he has to hold up at the point of attack and physically has to hold up against bigger body guys. I just don't know that he can do it. I haven't seen enough on film to suggest to me. And so that really is what went wrong when you're looking for this position group this year. I felt like he struggled in the run game. He ranked 30th out of 32 centers and run block grade by pro football focus. I didn't think he was as effective in zone blocking as I anticipated he was going to be. He didn't win the positioning battle body wise a lot of the time. And he's not going to overpower people. That just isn't his game. And so that is a big question mark for them at the center position looking towards 2023. And I think we would be remiss not to mention the right guard position too, because I kind of treat it like the quarterback position. Obviously, right guard is not as important as the QB. You're not going to be paying right guards $35 million a year. But they also were rotating Gabe Jackson and Phil Haynes in part to keep both of them healthy. They both had some injury issues. But my viewpoint, and especially on the offensive line and at quarterback, if you have two guys playing the position, you don't have a starter. And nobody emerged from those two as the clear-cut starter. They went with Gabe Jackson in the postseason because Phil Haynes had a high ankle sprain. They stopped with the rotation there. But all year long, they were rotating those two. And I think it's hard to get in a rhythm on the offensive line when you're only playing 40 or 50% of the snaps. And I think that hindered both guys' play, but in particular, Phil Haynes. There were flashes. The three games he started, the Seahawks went 3-0 and and averaged almost 120 rushing yards per game. But his run blocking was not as crisp for most of the season. I think some of it just simply had to do with the fact a lot of games he got less than 10 reps run blocking. He just couldn't get in a rhythm because of this rotation. And so that is also a position that is a major question mark with Gabe Jackson having a big – Uh, expensive final year of his contract and Phil Haynes being a free agent. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen at that position. And certainly they need to figure out an upgrade at right guard. As you said, the biggest thing was the rotation. The rotation was sort of confusing. As Pete Carroll said, Gabe Jackson was dealing with an old knee and they wanted to rotate Phil Haynes in as he showed some talent as well. But like, just like you said, like, the quarterback thing you have two people starting you have none and phil haynes flashes of good run blocking and honestly really solid pass protection i remember seeing a clip of him matching aaron donald in one of the games and he actually played fairly well during that game yet as you said it's, it's hard to get into a rhythm and continuously build upon your performances when you're only getting 40 percent of the offensive snaps 
Heck, some games it was less than that. How are you supposed to build and get better when you're not able to consistently be on the field and work on the things that you're supposed to work on? It it just it's just hard for him. And this is something that I could truly see next season. Seattle fully going in and saying Phil, and keeping Phil Haynes at the, as the starter, and instead of outsourcing, continue with the continuity. He's already here and let him start and build upon his performances. And that was something I thought they were going to maybe do this year. The issue was that Gabe Jackson was getting paid a lot of money. And I think that they went into the season thinking, well, we rested him a lot in training camp in the preseason. I think he's going to be okay. And it became clear early on that they were going to have to do workload management with him. And so again, I would be really surprised if Gabe Jackson is back next season just because they can save over $6 million cutting him. He was not effective in the past game or the run game most of the season. I thought end of the year he played a little bit better, but he just he's not the player that they thought they were trading for at this point. And Haynes just was not able to get into that rhythm. And so I would agree with you. I think that the most likely scenario here is the Seahawks are going to cut Jackson. I think they can bring back Haynes at a pretty affordable price rate. I don't think teams are going to be jumping, trying to sign into big money and free agency as a starter. Uh, but I think the Seahawks can give him a new contract and give him a legitimate opportunity to compete for that right guard job, most likely against a rookie that they use a draft pick on. Now, if they pick one super early, they'll hope for, they'll hope for the rookie to win that job. But Phil Haynes has flashed enough that if you can keep him on the field, the durability has been the big question. It really was a, a tale of two spectrums. Gabe Jackson getting all those reps uh, taken away from him maybe wasn't as big of a deal because he's been in the league for 10-plus years. Phil Haynes has had some injuries. He really has not played much. He still hasn't gotten to 800 career snaps in four years of the Seahawks. So he needed those snaps, and to be in a musical chairs arrangement at right guard didn't do him any favors. And so they have to put him in a position that they bring him back where he can truly compete for that starting job against a rookie or if they bring in another affordable free agent. Whatever they choose to do, it seems like they will have a new starter there one way or another. So we'll see what the Seahawks choose to do. But obviously, there's a lot of room for improvement in this interior offensive line. Lewis being the one that looks like he could still be a foundational player. They got to figure out what they're going to do at center and right guard this spring. Coming up next, continuing our free agent primer, we're going to go to the defensive side of the football. The elder statesman of the Seahawks pass rush. Will Bruce Irvin be back for a 12th NFL season at the age of 36? We'll be discussing and debating coming up next year on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This is by FanDuel, the Midway AC, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000, that's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel sports app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to point scores to three-pointers drained. I'm a big fan of betting on player props. Yesterday, I did the player double parlay on D'Angelo Russell going for 20 or more points for the Lakers. He got 21. So at plus 210, I'm feeling pretty darn good. FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with the same game parlay. So don't miss the chance to get your no sweat first bet up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash locked on. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 
You're listening to the Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. This is your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined for today's episode by my co-host, Dallas Cooper. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. Switching gears, this has been a very offensive line heavy episode, which excites me. I love the run game and offensive linemen. But let's get to the pass rushers with our free agent primer and this is a really interesting question for the Seahawks going into the offseason with free agency set to start on March 15th. One of their pending free agents is a player that wasn't on their radar to come back last year. And then they, the Seahawks had the really rough struggle to beginning the season defensively, particularly against the run game. Get to week five, and it's time to bring Bruce Irvin off the couch. And let's bring him in for a workout. Has a really good workout. They signed him to the practice squad, and – Within a couple weeks, he is in the starting lineup. And I thought that Irvin gave this defense some real juice for the first couple weeks that he came back. And ultimately, he ended up playing way more snaps than he should have at 35 years of age. It took away opportunities from the young players, and he just wore down as the season progressed. But I think we'd be remiss not to mention the impact that he had because this defense seemed to be galvanized, at least for a four or five game stretch. After Bruce Irvin arrived, the run defense got better. They won four games in a row with several of those with him playing extensive snaps on defense. And his presence as a leader was also crucial for Boy Mafe and Daryl Taylor, whose performance stepped up quite a bit after he signed and played in his first game for the Seahawks in week six. The fire and tenacity that Bruce Irvin plays with as you said, jolted this defense for a couple weeks during that stretch. Bruce Irvin has always played with that. Even going back to the LOB days, Bruce Irvin was always tenacious as a pass rusher. He he almost made it seem like he was offended that offensive linemen were trying to block him. Like <laughs> it's just that experience, like that leadership that he brought. And especially for the young players, Boya Mafe, Daryl Taylor, they fed off of that. They needed that. And as you said, in the base front, as a 3-4 edge rusher, they needed that run defense. They needed someone to be able to set the edge, especially in the NFC West, a very run-heavy division. But as you said, it did take away snaps from those said young players. And that was kind of the hit or miss with this. You brought in a, a jolt player who could bring in a lot, yet you lost a lot of snaps from your young players that you really would have wanted to see and see their development. It's, a, it's something that I don't think the Seahawks really will be looking to bring him back unless it's for injury during the next season. I think you really want to see these young players develop and you want them to be three down starters. That's the main thing. You need a three down starter at the edge rusher spot. You don't want to bring him back if it is going to be eating much into the snap count for players like Taylor and Mafe because they need to be out there. At the same time, I could understand, I wouldn't bat an eye if the Seahawks decided to bring Bruce Irvin back just simply because of his presence in the locker room. And as I mentioned, Taylor and Mafe, they stepped their game up after we saw Bruce Irvin return. Eight and a half sacks and 27 pressures combined between the two of them. A lot of that production coming from Daryl Taylor. Mafe was fantastic defending the run, though. And Irvin even talked about this in a press conference last season that he just felt like Mafe, the jump that he made from Seattle in week six to the end of the year was as big as anyone. And so these two players, 
they really did gain a lot from being able to learn from him on the practice field and being able to watch how he carried himself in game action. And it's not like Bruce Irvin came in and just wasted reps. He still had 20 pressures on the quarterback, three and a half sacks, which is the highest total he had since 2019. And he had an 11% pressure weight, uh, pressure rate, which is respectable, especially for a 35 year old pass rusher. So there were a lot of things to like. I just think at the end of the day, the biggest issue was he was playing way too many snaps and it wasn't just taking away from those young guys and the experience they could have gained. Physically, he was not able to handle that, especially without a training camp and a preseason. He came off the couch in week six. So for him to go out and do what he did was pretty impressive. But by the end of the season, you could tell that even though there was occasionally a flash play from him, you could tell he was getting banged up. Opponents started to game plan to run at him because he wasn't playing with as good of discipline late in the season. And teams were taking advantage of it. And so he's obviously not a priority player to re-sign because of his age. He's been very popular. He has been a consummate team player. What a difference from when he was drafted. And there was all those character concerns to what he has become now, a father, a great family man. He's, there's a ton of credit for that evolution that he's had in his lengthy NFL career. And I thought he was done the last couple of years, whether it was because of injury or age, for him to go out and play like that certainly helped the Seahawks defense. It helped the young players. But I would tend to agree with you. This is not a situation where I'm completely against bringing back Bruce Irvin. But if that's the only significant move that you make with your edge rushing group this offseason, I think that you failed. You've got to add some young juice. You've got Alton Robinson and Tyreek Smith set to come back after missing all of last season. So that also is going to make it much less likely that you're going to need Bruce Irvin. As you mentioned, if they have an injury or two in training camp in preseason, we could see a repeat from last year, maybe week four. Oh, no, we got a couple guys go down. Hey, Bruce, you want to come off the couch? He proved he could do it this year. They just can't fall into a position where he's starting games and he's playing 50-plus percent of snaps. He just isn't built to do that at this stage of his career, and it takes away from the young guys. And so I'm not against re-signing him, but like you, I think the most likely scenario, if he is going to be back at the age of 36 for a 12th season, it's going to be a late signing, whether that's in training camp or even early in the regular season. I don't see them rushing to re-sign him. He's not a priority free agent. They're going to look for ways to get some younger talent in that edge rushing group. Absolutely. Bruce Irvin, as you said, performed admirably coming off the couch and out of nowhere just bringing this jolt to his defense. And yet, I just don't see it coming back because, as you said, Tyreek Smith, Alton Robinson, the Seahawks do have a good amount of young edge rushers. They need to see them. That's the biggest issue. We just haven't seen enough of them. They've gotten some flashes here and there, but we haven't gotten consistent snaps out of any of them, really. Daryl Taylor, they tried. The run defense wasn't there at the beginning of the season. He got yep. he had to become a sub-package rusher. And then in that role, I wonder if Irvin had a lot to do with him accepting that role, that lesser role, and kind of flourishing in that and giving nine and a half sacks on the season. Because at the end of the day, Irvin was mostly, I feel, an off-the-field pickup. It was the leadership, as you said, how he carried himself, how, what he brought to the game, how he prepared. That was what they needed to show an example to the young players. And I think we saw enough from Irvin on the field where, again, as a rotational guy that's playing 15, 20% of the snaps, 
I think he can still make an impact. He can still make a positive difference for you. But that is not the role that he was playing for the Seahawks this year. They were asking way more out of him. And they can't find themselves in a position like that again next year. Because, again, that would tell me either the player development has failed or they didn't do enough this offseason to add talent to the group, uh, further bolster it with young talent. If he's out there playing 50-plus percent of the snaps, something went wrong. And that's not a knock on Bruce Irvin. I think he's had a fantastic career. And, again, I think he can still make an impact in a smaller, more diminished role as a situational rusher, can still play the run a little bit. But he's at the stage of his career where he isn't going to be a guy that you're going to be asking to play that many snaps. That's just the reality. If he is playing that much, something went wrong. There were injuries or development didn't pan out. Daryl Taylor didn't take that next step. Whatever the case may be, something didn't pan out the way that you planned, if that's the case. So could I see him back? Absolutely. Do I see him being a priority to re-sign? No, that's just the honest answer there. He's more of a locker room presence than anything at this point. And so we'll see what happens. Maybe the Seahawks have interest in bringing him back for training camp. But I don't expect that this is going to be a move they're going to be quickly making in free agency to re-sign him. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Dallas at Dallas C. Cooper. Check out Locked on Seahawks. We're available on all major podcast platforms and streaming five days a week on YouTube. Coming up on Friday, I'll be rejoined by Nick Lee and the two of us will continue our free agent frenzy in the AFC South looking at a handful of pending free agents that could be good fits for the Seahawks and much more. You won't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday and thanks for listening. Go Hawks!